Father, we're thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning with each other, to see each other's faces, to be encouraged by one another's faith, continued walk and perseverance on this pilgrimage to glory, and also to be in your special presence. And we pray that would be the case this morning. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins, Lord, and that you would come because of what your Son, the Lord Jesus, has done on our behalf. We come to you only in and through him, pleading for mercies and grace upon your children, that we would know your presence here, that you would be faithful to the promise you have made to be where two or three are gathered in your name, that we would be encouraged, that we would be filled with the Spirit, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ, that our hearts would be enlarged to love you more, as a result of our gathering. Please hear us. Please bless these messages to your glory and for the good of the saints, salvation of needy sinners, as we think about Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to talk about the transfiguration in the first hour and Gethsemane in the second two very different experiences that our Lord Jesus had while here on earth. And um, there's a reason for that. I was speaking to my mother on the way here. I've been reading a book by Hugh Martin called The Shadow of Calvary. And it's primarily on Gethsemane. But uh, he said some things in there about Christ and his experience in the garden. Uh, that were very encouraging and have been filling my hearts, my heart, and and the 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 big idea was to draw some of those thoughts out into a different sermon, but uh, that didn't uh, happen. So we're going to do it this way and talk about uh, transfiguration of Christ, like I said in Gethsemane in the second hour. And these are from sermons I've already preached. <clears throat> so I'm going to read from Matthew 17, if you want to turn there and uh, listen along or follow along. Beginning in verse 1, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them 
of John the Baptist. And then turn over to Luke chapter 9. 28 through 36. And Luke gives us the account of the transfiguration, but he includes some other details that Matthew does not speak to. And I'd like for you to hear that as well. Verse 28 in Luke 9. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And when they kept silent, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Very interesting that Luke records Jesus calls these men up to the mountain to pray. Same thing in the garden. He took these three with him to pray in the garden. Especially these three had privileges the others did not, and this is one of those occasions. And in the Gospels, there's a transition you find in the writers. Moving from some of the outward miraculous things that Jesus did that confirmed his identity. Specifically focused on one of the main themes of Christ's life, which would be his suffering. He proved that he was the Messiah and the Christ by many of the miracles that he did. Authority over creation. Authority over disease authority over demons in the demonic world. And when he asks Peter earlier on, who do men say that I am? We have that great confession of faith as Peter represents the apostles. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now it's as if in the ministry of Jesus, now that they have come to the place where they're convinced that he's the Christ, they have to be educated as to what the nature of the Christ's ministry would be because they were completely confused about what the Christ would do. And from here on in the Gospels, Jesus again and again is teaching us and the apostles that the Christ must suffer. That before glory comes, suffering and the cross must come first. And you see him speaking of it here in Luke 9 and also uh, in Matthew. And the transfiguration is for confirmation. That's one of the main emphases. I, I believe that this happened. Confirmation that the apostles would come to, to trust Jesus' teaching and come to believe what he said about himself. You'll never understand the passage if you don't understand the context. 
The main purpose of Christ's ministry, again, was to die on the cross. This is what he was teaching them prior. The Jewish concept of the Christ was not consistent with the reality of the Christ, the Messiah's ministry. And could it be, I think, in Matthew, that he's sympathizing with Jewish readers in his gospel? Could it be he's emphasizing with their rejection of Jesus, or empathizing with it by sharing how slow the apostles were to understand and believe Jesus and his teaching upon his suffering. Shortly after Jesus begins to focus his teaching on the absolute necessity of suffering, he's transfigured before three of the twelve. And I think this was designed to confirm the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, and the words of Jesus for the benefit of these apostles and their readers. I think also as I was reading Shadow of Calvary by Hugh Martin, it was a confirmation and a reminder to Jesus as well of the main mission of his coming, and that would be his cross work and his death. Here he is in glory, revealed, transfigured. His glory is revealed. And Hugh Martin suggests that possibly we get a picture of the future for Jesus, what his exalted glory would be like as his face is radiating with light. And in the midst of being transfigured, in the midst of manifesting his glory, and clearly the apostles have an, an amazing spiritual experience, what is the subject of his conversation with Moses and Elijah? It's his death. It's his suffering. And it's almost as if it's a kind of a killjoy topic. I mean, here we are on the mountain, beholding you, Lord Jesus, in all of your, your glory. We're in a place that, that we don't want to leave. We want to we stay here forever. We never want to leave this mountain. We're enjoying this picture of your glory and this experience, this spiritual experience that must have must have just filled these apostles' hearts with joy and with happiness and with glory. And Peter's like, I'm going to make three tabernacles. We're not going anywhere. Let's just stay here. And if Peter had his way, they would have never come down from the mountain. They would have basked in the glory of Christ's presence forever, just the three of them, and the world would have been damned to hell. Because the cross work, the atoning work of Christ, was not complete. And Jesus, as, he, as he's talking to Moses and Elijah, who are representatives of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, are speaking to him about his death. And it's almost a reminder to Jesus from heaven that though the glory will come, the cross must come first. The cross must come before the glory. And Jesus in his humanity, I mean, we say this reverently, was he not grounded and balanced as he's transfigured in glory to remember this and to emphasize this with Peter? And Peter and the apostles is much like all of us, isn't he? 
We love the glory. We love the heights of spiritual experience. We love the good times that we experience in life in general. And the bad times, we don't like that much, do we? We don't choose suffering. If we have our choice, we would not choose to suffer. And we would be taken up to glory even now, sometimes. And we need to be reminded of this too, don't we? That first the cross, then glory. And it's a dose of reality that we all need, isn't it? Because we go back and forth in our life living in this tension. I might be getting ahead of myself here, but this tension in Christian experience. Over time, we, we get to positions in our thinking where we want more out of things than those things are able to give us. We expect more than we have the right to expect from our own spiritual experience, from relationships, from the state of the church, the state of the country, right? And we forget reality. That what we long for in seeking perfection in these things and some sort of experience that's positive is ultimately not here yet, brother. That we have to wait for it. First the cross, first difficulty, first suffering, and then glory. And yet we get these foretastes, don't we? When we gather spiritual foretaste of the glory to come. And that's a blessing for us. So Christ in this experience is is perhaps being reminded about his identity, but also his mission in the midst of being transfigured, in the midst of this mountain experience of glory. Uh, First of all, let's look at the confirmation of his identity here to the apostles. In Matthew 16, 15 through 17, Who do you say that I am? Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter is representing all the apostles, confessing that Jesus is the Son of the living God. Who do you say that you are? Who, who do we say that you are? We believe that you are Jesus the Christ, that you are the Son of the living God, that you are God, your authority to cast down demons. We've witnessed to heal every form of disease. We've seen it to teach, and your proven authority over creation all force us to this conclusion that you are exactly who you confess yourself to be, the Son of the living God. This is the context. His glory is the Son of God. On this mountain is being clearly revealed, isn't it? He was transfigured before them. Their report is that His face shone like the sun. What man, woman, boy, or girl has ever had this happen to them in history? And His clothes became white as light. Peter refers to this experience and what he saw with his own eyes in his second letter, 
chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw His glory, His greatness, His preeminence as the eternal Son of God. His face shone like the sun, clothes became white as light, the brightness of His glory was like nothing we've ever seen on earth. It was unique, it was wonderful, it was majestic to be in His presence was so amazing, we didn't want to leave. glory of God is what we saw. The, th- the authority of God revealed in the things Jesus did and said while we were with Him. And His majestic appearance revealed to us on the mountain. The response of Peter, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll build tabernacles. Peter's, uh, Peter's response and experience brings to mind the dwelling place of God, the brightness and radiance of the Lord's appearance confirmed to Peter that he was in the presence of the Almighty based on everything he had learned from the Old Testament and times when God had come down from heaven to meet with men. It was just like that. Not only was it supremely good to be in the presence of Jesus as His deity is being revealed, it was terrifying. He could feel the awesomeness of Christ's glory and of the experience and equip his soul. Testimony of the Father reveals and confirms his identity. That's another fact about this passage. They hear this audible voice. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. So the transfiguration of Jesus was designed to confirm the apostolic confession that He is none other than the Son of God. They saw His works, heard His words, but here they got to see, got to get a glimpse of His majestic preeminent glory as the only begotten Son of the Father. And just as a side note for us, brethren, it's a reminder to us that our faith is not based upon fairy tales and myths. Our faith in Christ is based on personal eyewitness accounts of His majesty. And where two or three attest, every fact is to be established. There's a reason there were three witnesses on the mountain. There's a reason there were twelve apostles following Christ. All during His ministry. Not just two or three, but twelve, to testify of who he was and what he did, and to have their testimony be consistent. Don't be derailed in your faith. Your faith is established on facts, established by witnesses who saw these things with their own eyes. They're not fairy tales, they're not myths. And this is the reason, as a side note, things like the Gnostic Gospels in the 1st and 2nd century were rejected by the church and rejected by the apostles because imposters and fakes were trying to come into the church to confuse the church. But the problem was, is some of the eyewitnesses were still alive. It wasn't that they were mean to these people and didn't let these Gnostic Gospels come into the testimony and they should have been and it was 
for ulterior wrong motives that they did so. No, the reason they rejected those writings is they were inconsistent with the apostolic testimony, the guys who actually saw what happened and heard with their own ears. That's why they were rejected. That's why they were considered to be false and untrue, because they didn't jive with what these men and 500 others, let's remember, that Paul speaks to, who saw Jesus dead and saw Him raised, saw it experienced firsthand. So we have good encouragement to believe the apostolic writings and the testimony of Scripture. And then secondly, confirmation of Christ's mission. Some of the things we were alluding to here this morning in the introduction, the context of this passage, Peter and the other apostles cannot fathom that Jesus should suffer and be treated with such contempt. Wouldn't the transfiguration be another aspect of their experience with Christ that would dumbfound them? How could someone with such innate glory and majesty suffer at all? They completely did not understand this. Their ideas of Messiah's ministry, not unlike many of the Jews in, in those days, their ideas were those of glory, power, eternal reign, and rule, the reestablishment of Israel in the, na- in the world as the superpower, as the mighty nation to take back what was stolen and to rule over all the other nations in glory. It was one of glory and power, not of suffering, not of him being treated with contempt. The transfiguration was designed to confirm what Jesus began to teach them about the cross. To encourage them to believe what he was going to be teaching them and what he had been teaching them, what he began to really emphasize in his teaching ministry to them. Moses and Elijah are seen with Jesus. These represented the law and the prophets to the Jew. And they were meant to reveal and to, to, to symbolize the whole teaching of the Old Testament. When these two appeared with Christ, and they're seen talking with Jesus, and what are they talking about? Luke tells us in his account. Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what? What's the big intent of that? What's the point? Well, it's confirmation that what Jesus is teaching them about his suffering, death, and resurrection is 100% consistent with what the whole of the Old Testament teaches. And so the problem is not the Bible. The problem is not Revelation. The problem is not that this has never been spoken about before. The problem is the understanding of the apostles and of the Jews in Jesus' day. They didn't understand the Scriptures. And continually Jesus says His ministry takes the Jews back to the Scriptures. Back to what is written. With what it says about Him. Interesting, this is a passage I'm going to preach on uh, when I have opportunity, Lord willing, in the future, 
in coming back to Acts. But in Acts 17, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but verses 2 and 3, this, was, this is what Paul used when he preached Christ. When he tried to convince God-fearing Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, how did he do it? What, what information did he point to? And I found this to be really interesting in Acts 17. And again, just an example um, of, of what Paul did again and again. They traveled through Amph- uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This is the Law of the Prophets explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. But what is he teaching them about the Christ? First of all, he's trying to convince these God-fearing Jews that the Christ had to suffer and rise again. That this is the main mission of the Christ to come into this world the first time, to suffer, to deal with the root cause of all of our problems, which is sin. Our main problem, my brethren, as Paul would preach, is not the Roman Empire. It's Satan's empire. Our main problem is not that we're enslaved to Romans. It's that we're enslaved to sin. It goes far deeper. So Moses and Elijah are here with Jesus confirming what his mission is going to be to them and also reminding the Lord Jesus. The voice of the Father is another example. He's still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to what? Specifically, these apostles are being commanded to have their views and ideas about Christ's mission conform to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Think your thoughts, Peter, James, John, and the rest of the apostles, after God's thoughts. They're confused. They don't understand. And here God the Father is telling them, listen to Jesus. Listen to what he's telling you about his mission, about his suffering, about him being handed over to the chief priests and the religious rulers, and about him dying and being raised. Listen to him. Get your mind around his thoughts. Think his thoughts. Think your thoughts after his thoughts. What he's saying about his mission, in other words, is 100% true. And our response to him is to have our views and thinking about the work of Christ conformed to him. And then we have also his mission, again, and the confirmation of his mission evidenced by the fact of Christ's own words after the transfiguration in Mark's account, 9 through 12. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
And they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how, it is, how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So here we see the words of the Lord Jesus speaking about him rising from the dead. So it seems to me Matthew, as he writes, and many, many do believe that Matthew was written to Jews, a gospel written to the Jew first, for them to come to the place where they would see Jesus as the Messiah. And he's relating here in his own gospel how hard it was for him and the other apostles to conceive of a suffering Messiah, to come to the place where they would believe it. It took him being transfigured. It took us hearing the voice of God himself telling us to listen to him, to be convinced of what he's telling us about himself. It took all of this for us to be convinced. We were so slow to accept it. It wasn't consistent with our view. And in one sense, as he writes to them, he's empathizing as he reveals their experience with Jewish readers slow to accept that the Christ should suffer, that this is what the Old Testament scriptures speak about him. Their understanding of the Christ even today, in our own day, brethren, is of a political Christ who saves his people from the nations. Christ of the Bible, though, is a savior of sinners, a savior from Satan and from the dominion of sin. And it's totally consistent with what the rest of the Scriptures teach about him. Transfiguration was designed to confirm what Jesus taught and to, to, and to do away with the Savior of their own imagination. Peter was still confused on the mountain. He saw the glory of the Savior. He believed to be glorious and wanted to enjoy this glory forever. No doubt the spiritual experience he had was, was terrifying but amazing. One he didn't want to end. Let's build tabernacles. Let's never leave the spot. Let's stay here in the light of your presence, which is good, and your glory, which is, which is awesome. The teaching of Jesus was cross first, then the crown. Suffering first, then glory. It's not the way we think, is it? By nature, we want glory without the cross. By nature, we don't want suffering. We don't want difficulty. And passages like this and reminders like this just remind us, brethren, of the order of things. It explains why we suffer. It explains the different experiences God is bringing through us through as he conforms us to the image of his Son. It explains to us that the ultimate glory is coming. It's not here yet. Yes, we can have good things now. We can experience foretastes of it. But ultimately, it will come when the Lord comes back or we go to see him in death. It's not for now. It's for them. And our hope needs to put, be put on that ultimately and not on the things of this life that can flee us and that can disappoint us and discourage us. It was a reminder to them and a reminder to him. I mean, I, I'm just struck too by 
when you read of passages like this and you read of the slowness of his own disciples, his own apostles to understand how alone Jesus was while on earth in his understanding. It is absolutely an accurate description as the scriptures speak of it that the light came into the world and the world was darkness. Think about it, brethren. Here's the Jewish nation that had the privilege of having the scriptures, the revelation of God. But the nation is filled, by and large, with confusion over what the Old Testament spoke about the Christ, what kind of a Messiah he would be. The confusion even among Christ's early followers, the first believers. In other words, there was very little fellowship and understanding and union of heart that he had with these men at this point in time. And how alone Christ was in his understanding of who he was. And how he had to teach this and preach this to these guys who followed him and who didn't get it. But they were the chosen ones. And we see how the Lord Jesus, though, doesn't allow their lack of understanding, their limitation, their weakness... Dictate what he's going to do. He has set his face, we read in other parts of the Bible, to go to Jerusalem, to suffer. Set his face to do the will of his Father. And doing the will of the, of the Father is not contingent on their limitation and their understanding. It's what he knows God sent him to do, uh, why God sent him into the world, and it's what he's going to do. And he's pressing on in the midst of such confusion. And we also see an example of of how one of the devices of Satan, confusion. You Jews, yeah, the Messiah is coming. He's going to be a great king. He's going to deliver you from the Romans. He's going to be the Christ, but a political Christ. He didn't care that the Jews in Jesus' day believed that the Messiah was coming for them. and He doesn't care today. As long as their understanding of the Christ is confused and twisted and is mixed with his demonic, devilish lies. This is one of the main devices of Satan. And it's why we need the truth of God's Word regularly coursing through our thinking and through our hearts. And we need to be regularly praying that God would keep us in the truth and keep us from Satan's lies. And you better believe again and again, Satan came to Jesus to try to get him confused about who he was. How did he come to Christ when he was in the wilderness, tempted by Satan? If you are the Son of God. What was Satan trying to do? Trying to get Jesus in his humanity to doubt his own identity. To doubt what the Scriptures really said about him. And again and again, how does Jesus combat the temptation and lies of Satan? It is written. It is written. It is written. Brethren, it should highlight for us as we work through the passage the value of God's Word. 
as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path to, to deliver us from darkness and confusion, to keep us on the narrow way that leads to life, no matter what the world says, no matter how they try to get us to believe differently. Our only sure guide is right here in God's holy word. Not what men say about it. That's one of the other things that plagues Jews down to our day. They put more emphasis on the teaching of men about the Word than the Word itself. How many times did Jesus have to clear this up? Yes, but from the beginning it wasn't so. From the beginning of what He goes back and back to Genesis, to the Scriptures, to the Scriptures, to get them to turn away from the traditions of men and to come back to the pure Word of the living God. And here it's clear that the Old Testament, and this is one of the things of emphasis in trying to evangelize Jewish people, is to convince them from their own scriptures that the Christ must suffer and Jesus is the Christ. That's what the Old Testament teaches about the Christ. He would be a suffering Savior for the sins of His people. That's what all the types and images point to. It's Jesus as a suffering Savior. And here, the Lord Jesus is reminded of it, too. And then confirmation of His Word comes through. If the transfiguration confirms that Jesus is God, then His teaching about God, life, our sin, and salvation is preeminent. This is why I really do believe miracles, by and large, are of no use in our day. Miracles, if God gave them in our day, would distract us into thinking there's something more God has to tell us. Why did we have all of these miracles, incredible miracles that have never been done since the first century? Why did they happen then? Why did they happen in connection with the ministry of Jesus? It's because God wants all of our attention upon His teaching and upon His ministry and upon what He said. It is the definitive, final word we have from God, superior to all other words, and there never will be another word that even comes close to it, paralleling the revelation we get in Christ. All of the miracles testify to these are the things that God's given us. These are the things we must learn about God. These are the things we must focus on. Listen to Him. Listen to Jesus. And there'll be no other prophet that we ever need again because the final once and for all prophet has come. The prophet of prophets. He is the teacher the prophet who's teaching about the Old Testament or anything for that matter is our ultimate authority. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews meant when he compares the teaching and revelation of Jesus to every other prophet, to the revelation of angels, Jesus Christ and his revelation is preeminent. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He's done something different. He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Brethren, how can we find a better source for truth than Jesus? <laughs> the radiance and exact representation of the excellence of God. We don't. 
when Jesus was transfigured, it didn't answer every question the disciples had about what the suffering Jesus would endure. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What they should, what they should do at that point is what the Father told them to do. It's my beloved Son. Listen to Him. So it confirmed that as apostles, they must continue to listen and to teach what Jesus taught them. Hear Him, follow Him, learn from Him, ask Him to give you understanding. Let His teaching govern your mind on everything. And so the transfiguration, again, should motivate us to have a high view of Scripture. Where is Jesus speaking today? How how does He speak through the Word revealed in His apostles and prophets? In the New Testament, the explanation of Old Testament passages found in in the New is the explanation of those passages. It ends all debate if the New Testament speaks about Old Testament passages because they are the explanation and exposition and commentaries of the Lord Jesus. What a blessing the truth is to our souls. What a need the world has, brethren, of the truth. And what an interesting thing that on this mountain of transfiguration, the main theme that is brought to the heart and mind of Christ, that He's speaking about with Moses and the prophets, is not His glory, but His death need to be reminded of this ourselves. Too many times we're tempted to focus and plan. I mean, Ken Harris came and talked to us. Our plan's God's providence. We have these plans. They're good plans. They don't work out. We need to trust God and we need to realize that, look, especially some of you who are younger, this is going to happen again and again in life. Life is filled, listen to me carefully, with disappointments. Life is filled okay, with expectations, a lot of times good, that remain unfulfilled. How many of you are experiencing things or have experienced things in your life that you did not expect? All of us. And here's the thing, when that happens, how are you going to handle it? If you don't have this concept of cross now, glory later, it's going to crush you. You're going to be led to despair. You're going to be led to discouragement that could tempt you to leave the faith. This this can happen in every aspect of life. When we talk about the church of Jesus Christ, because somehow... All of our expectations about the church of Jesus Christ should always come to fruition because it's Christ's church, right? Yeah, it's Christ's church, but guess what? We still have remaining sin. What does that mean? We know that theologically and in our brains, but practically speaking, you know what it means? Don't put all your hope in me, Adam Davies. Why? Because I'm going to let you down. I'm going to sin against you. Not purposely, not willingly, hopefully, not secretly and intentionally, but it's going to happen as we get to know each other and as we walk with one another. We're going to sin against each other. 
We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to handle things perfectly. We're never going to have perfect leadership. We're not going to have a perfect membership. There's going to be people that come and people that go. There's going to be disappointments in the church until we get to glory. Then all these disappointments are going to be gone. Expectations about your future wife. Expectations about your future husband. Alright? Some of them are good. Some of them are great. But then reality sets in. They're sinners just like you. Your children. Whatever the case may be. Your job. Every single job is done by the sweat of our brow with difficulty. With trial. In other words, there's no perfect job. Nothing is perfect in this life. The glory that we're yearning for is good. But it's not yet. It's coming. It's future. That's where our hope is to be set. That's where our hope is to be. First, Whatever God's will calls us to. Now Jesus, before this transfiguration experience, is telling his disciples, you guys, you know, it's not that I'm going to be the king in this life, and Peter, you're going to sit on my left, and John, you're going to be on my right, and we're going to rule the world. This is what James and John's mother wanted. Hey, when you come, can, can these guys like be exalted with you? He goes, no, you're going to have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. You know what Christian life's about? You know what being a part of my kingdom's like? It's losing your life here. But you might gain it there. Peter says, well, you know, the rich man comes to Jesus and he says, sell everything and come follow me. He went away discouraged and in despair because he had lots of money. And Peter says, Jesus, I mean, we left everything to follow you. And he says, you're going to have treasure in heaven. You're going to be blessed in this life and a hundredfold in the next. But blessed in a different way. The greatest blessing we can know in this life is not what we think. It's not something we can see with our eyes. It's not something we can handle that's green and we can put in a bank account. It's not even the relationships. It's spiritual blessing from heaven. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us. The presence of God in our midst, in our souls, encouraging us and being with us through life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In thy presence is fullness of joy. These are the solid joys and lasting treasures the hymnist speaks of, right? They're internal, they're spiritual, and, and one day they're going to blow up and become external and outward and political. Something we can see. Something we'd be a part of outwardly, but, but not yet. Not yet. In this life, guess what's going to happen? Our bodies are going to break down. There are going to be painful experiences that we have. We might get COVID. We might get sick. Our minds might start to fail us and, and leave us. Okay? And, and as the body continues to break down and it gets older and older and older towards the grave and ultimately death, that's not a fun experience. That's a hard experience. 
But the encouragement we have within the scriptures is that spiritually, God's presence never breaks down, never leaves us. He's always with us, even into the graying years. He will not forsake us. And it says in the scripture in Isaiah, we considered it last time, He will carry us in the graying years. That's the spiritual assurance of God's presence, no matter what you experience in this life. He's going to be with us. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. Even in the midst of this suffering and difficulty, the Lord Jesus will be with us. That's an encouragement. That's a blessing to our souls. Just a word from Hugh Martin here as we close, the shadow of Calvary. And it's on this aspect of the subject of the death of Christ being brought to Christ's mind and heart through Moses and Elijah, while on the mountain of of transfiguration. The two great themes, he says, which engross the whole testimony of the Spirit of Christ, or the Bible, as he spoke by all the prophets, were the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The time had been when that glory, as by anticipation, appeared in blessed foretaste to be realized. And the same three witnesses beheld it. While the glory seemed thus revealed, it's the Mount of, Mount, Mount of Transfiguration he's referring to, the sufferings were the theme presented to the Savior's mind. And heavenly messengers descended on the holy mount and talked with him of the decease which he would accomplish at Jerusalem. There's the anecdote. There's our help. There's the reminder. There's our grounding when we are tempted to put more weight upon the things of this world, on our own plans, on our experiences, on on life here before our Lord comes. May the Lord guide us and help us and be with us. Let's pray.